Um, our Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for your grace, and uh, we thank you for the fact that despite uh, off weeks or on weeks, um, that you are still uh, the God who is yesterday, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank you that we can come to you as our great God to hear from you um, and to not just not just fellowship, but, but to really uh, draw near to you in your word, uh, because it's not my words, it is your words. And we do trust that your word has the efficacious power to transform our lives. And so, God, we trust that you will be doing that tonight. We love you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the question that I wanted to pose uh, for all of us, and a question for us I wanted us to consider for tonight, is what does it mean? What does it quite mean to live a faithful Christian life? What does it quite mean to live a faithful Christian life? And what's interesting is that if I had asked all of you in this room on what it means to be a faithful Christian, I think I would probably get different responses and answers from all of, all of you guys. What does it look like to be a faithful Christian as a high schooler, uh, as a working professional, uh, maybe as a mom or as a dad or as a parent? What does it look like to be a faithful Christian? Now, I suspect that many of you guys, uh, your guys' answers would, di- would, 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 dif- would be different, but they would mainly fall under two main Categories. Now, let me just explain what I mean by that by way of uh, kind of sharing just a brief testimony of mine. Um, I became a Christian uh, when I was 16 years old. I did not grow up in the church like many of you guys did. Uh, actually, in fact, the circumstances surrounding my conversion revolved around my dad being diagnosed with terminal cancer. Uh, now, that's neither extraordinary or ordinary. It's just Those are just terrible circumstances. And God met me and he saved me through those terrible circumstances. And a question that I want to ask you guys is, is that normally how, how God tends to meet us in those circumstances? Does God meet us in uh, maybe perhaps the extraordinary or even the terrible or the, just the extraordinary circumstances of our lives? But on the other hand, uh, many of you did grow up going to church. I'm aware of that. Uh, many of you uh, still have both of your parents. And for many of you, your church experience was very normal, uh, very ordinary. You go to church with your parents on Sundays. You go to church on Fridays. Uh, you go to VBS. You serve in VBS. I saw some of you guys growing up in VBS. Like, it's weird now you guys are in high schoolers. Um, your experience as a Christian was very normal and ordinary. And the message that is often conveyed to all of us is that life, a, a life of discipleship to King Jesus, the life that is pleasing to God as a disciple, is ordinary Faithfulness. That is a message that is, I think, by and large conveyed to, I think, our church. And so a question, another question I want to ask is, is there more, maybe some of us are even asking, is there more to the faithful Christian life than just this ordinary, normal Christian experience, especially as someone who has grown up in the church? And I think sometimes we are given mixed messages on what it means to be a faithful Christian. Is faithfulness the ordinary obedience of a Christian or is faithfulness something a bit more extravagance, something a bit more uh, ex- extraordinary, or does it have to be one or the other? And I think for some of us, this ambiguity of what it exactly means to be a faithful Christian has led to confusion, cynicism, and even maybe perhaps led to guilt. And I wonder if this tension or this maybe this polarity resonates with us this evening. Because I think for all of us, all our, all our lives are bombarded by the everyday grind and experience of the 7, 7.30 in the morning to maybe sometimes for, for some of us, the 3 p.m. maybe earlier, or the everyday grind of the 9 to 5. And when you graduate high school and when you graduate college, you are stuck in a 9 to 5 job. And you're stuck in an office or maybe a research lab 
Peter and Emily. Uh, and so Generation Z, please prove me wrong. But some of us just wonder if we could be doing more for the Lord. Is, there, is, is, is life as a 9 to 5 Christian or 7.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Christian, is that, just, is that all there is to my life as a Christian following Jesus? And I remember when, uh, when Eric and Jesse had asked me to consider church planting with them uh, in Texas, and I prayed, fasted, even wept, and I told them that I would go. Uh, but when, when Lighthouse had, had given me an offer that I couldn't refuse, I broke my commitment to them, and I just remember feeling so guilty. And I think for some of us who, who went to, to maybe like, you know, a, a Christian summer camp, uh, maybe last summer, i.e. Mount Hermon, and you were so on fire for God, uh, you promised that you would be a light to the gospel to your friends, uh, you had made commitments to God, you made commitments to your parents, you made commitments to your, your uh, cabin leader, you made commitments to your dog, um, and uh, to just two weeks later after camp, uh, the Bible that you vowed to read is now just sitting on your youth pastor's desk collecting dust because some poor deacon had found it laying around at the church on a Sunday. And so if we're really honest with ourselves, we're not only conflicted but confused about what it exactly means to be faithful to Jesus and what a discipleship to him actually looks like. What is the life that's pleasing to God? What is the life that is pleasing to God? Is it just going to church? Is it just going to events or retreats? Is it meeting up with people? Is it living your ordinary Christian life? And so tonight, I just want to explore just a bit more exactly on what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus, not just in the 21st century, but as a Christian at Lighthouse Community Church, as a Christian in your neighborhoods, in your homes. What does it faithfully mean to be a Christian? Or what does it mean to be a faithful Christian, rather? And I think this is timely, I think, for a lot of us. There is so much going on at Lighthouse right now. And at a church like our size, it is just go, go, go. Like just last week, there were, I kid you not, there were eight events going on at church last week. You guys were not there for most of them. I was there for a good more than half of them. And next week, we're going to have another set of seven events next week. Not that events or Bible studies or small groups or counselor trainings or whatever are bad things, but isn't it funny how sometimes we tend to complicate simple things We'll put on shows, productions, outreach, and in-reach activities, and overlook the simple heartbeat of God for his people. Call this a vision message, despite the fact that we're a, you know, we're three months uh, into the new year. And so our key idea for tonight's message is, is pretty simple, okay? Faithful Christian living is a long obedience in the same direction to the glory and pleasure of God. Faithful Christian living, in other words, discipleship, is a long obedience in the same direction to the glory and pleasure of God. And we're going to be looking at the life of, guess who? Jesus. uh, To understand and to see what Christian faithfulness really looks like. And I, I know I just lost some of you when I said Jesus. Because for some of you, you're thinking, Jesus is the most unordinary individual to have ever lived. What hope is there for any of us? But I hope that during the course of our time together in the Gospel of Luke, that we'll come to see that Jesus is actually the paradigm, the example, and the pinnacle of Christian faithfulness to God, of what a a human being created in the image of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, living their lives should look like. And so the first point, it's the only point, but I have three implications later. But the first point is that faithful Christian living... Uh, or actually in your handout, it's uh, 
following Jesus is a long obedience in the same direction to the glory and pleasure of God. So if you, have, if, you, if you guys have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40. And we're, we're going to be jumping around the, the verses that I have uh, noted for you guys on the top corner of your handouts. Um, but Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40. And as you're turning there, I, I want to point out that uh, I won't be specifically giving verse-by-verse exposition as I normally do, uh, because this is a story, and so that would not be very conducive for us. Um, but Luke chapter 2, verse 22 the 40. And this is what the, uh, uh, Luke writes in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in with the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for a revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Jerusalem, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. That's a long time. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer and night and day. And coming up on that at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel, of, of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, They returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with knowledge, or uh, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was with, was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Now here's something uh, that you may or may not have known. Every account of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are trying to give an overlapping yet unique portrait and window into the life of Jesus. And when we look at the portrait that Luke is painting for us in the verses that we just read, this portrait is no different. Jesus is unlike anyone that there's ever uh, been and unlike anyone that there will ever be. From the Old Testament scriptures, we know that Jesus is the Messiah who was to be the consolation of Israel. And not just that, but to be the light to the Gentiles of the salvation of God. Luke is trying to demonstrate the unique and distinct identity of Jesus as the Son of God. It's the same reason why when Jesus comes into the temple with his family as a kid, this godly man, Simeon, and the prophetess, Anna, were prophesying and worshiping him. They were affirming and confirming his uniqueness. But at the same time, I think Luke is also doing something just a little bit differently here. Yes, on the one hand, he is pointing out Jesus' divinity and his uniqueness, but he's also doing something a little bit more subtle. Even though the Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and, and John all talk about the life of Jesus, they all accent different features of Jesus. And the passage that we in the passage that we just read, the passage is unique only to the Gospel of Luke here. The passage occurs nowhere else in the other Gospels. For all of their similarities, this passage only occurs in Luke. Now pay attention because it's very important. Why? It's because for all of Jesus' unique uniqueness and distinctives, Luke is also painting a portrait for us, another picture of another side of who Jesus is. He paints for us an ordinary Jesus. Well, how do we know? Well, when Jesus' parents bring Jesus to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord, we think that this is something, you know, really special going on. You know, this is, of course, this is Jesus being dedicated to the temple. This is the Son of God. But if you are in any way familiar with the Old Testament, which I know all of you are, dedication to the Lord was standard procedure. Take a look at verses 21 and 22 again. It says, At the end of the eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The book of Leviticus in the following verse tells us that every Israelite family was to consecrate and to circumcise every firstborn son. And so they were to circumcise after the eighth day. And after 40 days, they were to consecrate this baby to the temple. Now, why? It's interesting here. Why does Luke include this detail for us? Luke is intentionally taking us through the season of Jesus' life where he is sleeping, where he is getting his diaper changed, where he is getting breastfed by his mom, being taken along with his very devout Jewish family and adherence to the Mosaic law. It's like when parents bring their kids, you know, to Lighthouse to get their kids dedicated on a Sunday morning. So while on the one hand, yes, Jesus is unique and divine, Luke here takes extra care and effort to wrap this detail of Jesus' life in very ordinary ways. There's something very human about Jesus. He was just a baby performing what any normal Jewish baby would have done in the first century. Nothing special here. Take a look at verses 41 to 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up, when they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and mother, behold, your, uh, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And I went, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So there's a little bit of a time jump and the narrative advances. And baby Jesus is now teenager Jesus. He is now 12 years old. And why is this important? There is still something distinct about Jesus, even as a 12-year-old, 12-year-old. Because not only is Jesus in the temple, he is completely schooling the teachers in the temple. 
People are asking questions, and in verse 47, it says that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And in the mind of Jesus, there was already in his mind developing a self-understanding of who he was as the Son of God in the plan of God, salvation. Like, how many of you guys... Uh, I'm sorry, let me, let me back, uh, move up just a little bit. How many of you guys are willing to stay at church all week and hang out with me and all the other pastors? I'm sure all your parents would be all over the signups for that. And I will just happen to take a sick week for that. And I'll just not be there. Imagine if your parents asked you, well, where were you this whole week? And you said, well, I was at church because, uh, you know, I had to be in my father's house. And I guarantee you, your parents would probably take you to like, you know, maybe like the hospital and maybe consult with them, the, the doctors and say, is my kid on drugs? <laughs> so there's something different about Jesus even as a 12-year-old, right? Or is something more ordinary? It's interesting how Luke continues to wrap around Jesus' uniqueness and divinity with so much ordinary humanity. Why? In verse 41, Luke again takes extra care to mention that they went to Jerusalem every year for Passover. This was not more extraordinary than what any other Jewish family would have done. Do you know how Jesus got to the temple? He didn't fly over there. Uh, God didn't zap him to the temple. He didn't walk over water. His parents gave him a ride on their donkey. Okay, he didn't get there by himself. Well, you say, but this is Jesus that we're talking about. Well, of course, he's going to be at the temple. But we don't realize that this was the expectation for every Jewish family, every faithful Jewish family. Not just Jesus's. And in case you were wondering, when every Jewish male turned 13, they were expected to adhere to the Torah, the, the Mosaic Law, on their own without the aid of their parents. You guys are all older than 18, and you guys are still borrowing the faith of your parents. So while on the one hand, yes, Jesus was a little ahead of the curve, but on the other hand, he wasn't any more prodigious than any other boys of his age. And I would conjecture that part of his reason why Jesus was still, was still in the temple was because he didn't have a ride home. His parents had to pick him up, which is, I feel like, the quintessential junior high and high school experience, getting picked up by your parents at some place or your friend's house or the, or the movie theater. So we see this interesting dynamic where, on the one hand, Jesus is unique and divine. But on the other hand, there's something so ordinary and human about Jesus. We're not going to look there, but in the next chapter, in the next chapter over, Jesus fades, thank you, Kevin, Jesus fades from the scene for just a chapter, and the, focus, and the spotlight focuses on his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is the guy that we expect every faithful Christian to be like. John the Baptist is absolutely just crushing it for the kingdom of God. He is yelling at everyone. He is calling people to repentance. He's calling Pharisees. He's calling sinners. Uh, he's calling kings. He's calling tax collectors to repentance. This guy was fearless for the kingdom of God because he was preaching the kingdom of God. This is what we expect, is it not? Of what it means to be a normal, faithful Christian experience to be like. You know how long he was an itinerant preacher for? 18 years. Do you know who's missing in the first part of chapter 3? Jesus. Why? He is nowhere to be found. Where is he? He's home. Because Hebrew boys in the first century, roughly from the time of ages 10 to 12, were invited to take on their father's trade. So back then, they didn't have college degrees. Your father's major was your major. Who was Joseph, Jesus' dad? 
He was an artisan. He was a carpenter working with wood and stone. And so Jesus enters into his father's trade working with wood and stone for roughly 18 years of his life. 18 years of his life. And so while John the Baptist was absolutely crushing it for the kingdom of God, his cousin Jesus, for those 18 years, has been a son. He had been a brother, a regular attendee at the temple, and a carpenter until he was 30 years old. Getting a little familiar here? I turn 30 next year. Now let me stop here for a second. What do you, what do you think about Jesus' life at the moment? Just, you can be honest. What, what do you think about his life right now? You know what his life is? It's ordinary. Mundane. A little bit everyday-ish. You see, not many of us think that Jesus, think of Jesus this way. In fact, it makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't, doesn't it? To think that, to think about a Jesus who was a teenager with pimples, living under the authority of his parents, being nice to his siblings. And if your parents were here, they'd be, they'd be like, yeah, preach, preach, preach. <laughs> it makes us uncomfortable about a Jesus who was unmarried, who, who clocked in a normal nine to five for nearly two decades of his life, who went to the temple every day, as any ordinary Jewish family would have. And at the age of 30, Jesus begins his public ministry. And we know from this from uh, a baptism event with John the, uh, the Baptist at the end of Luke chapter 3. And when he gets baptized, God declares something about his life that is profound and something that is surprising for God to say to someone who had lived for the majority of their lives a very mundane and ordinary life. Take a look at chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. Chapter, chapter 3, 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so God the Father looks at Jesus and he, and he says, you are, you are my son. I am pleased with your life. But if we're really honest here, if you remember your honest thoughts about Jesus when I had asked you earlier, what has Jesus really done in his life up to that point that merited that kind of response from God? You guys, you guys following along here? So much ink and paper has been spilt over the interpretation of these two verses. Many commentators have not hesitated to comment on these two verses. And there were two main lines of interpretation on these verses. The first main line of interpretation says that when God, uh, that when Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, he was not being baptized for repentance because obviously Jesus was sinless. Therefore, he didn't have to uh, get, you know, baptized for the repentance of his sins. But rather, when, when Jesus was getting baptized, he was submitting and yielding his life to the plan and mission of God, which is absolutely true. The second line of interpretation says that when God says, you are my beloved son, God is declaring it in view of the kingdom ministry that Jesus is now going to enter into as an itinerant miracle worker. And I think this is also true, but could it also be possible, and not only possible, but logically consistent and even more so, dare I say, isn't it logically demanding that God the Father could not have pronounced his pleasure in Jesus for the three years of public ministry and of miracles and of preaching the gospel and of bringing uh, 
sight to the blind that were to come if he was not satisfied in the mundane, ordinary, and long obedience to God for those 18 years, 30 years of his life. Do you guys catch what I'm following? You guys, you guys catch what I'm saying here? It would not have logically made sense for God the Father. He could not have pronounced his pleasure in Jesus for the three years of his public ministry were it not were he not satisfied for the mundane, ordinary 30 years of his life. So that when the father is saying, you are my son, I am so pleased with you. He is not only affirming his pleasure in the spectacular miracles that Jesus will do in the future. He is also affirming his pleasure in what Jesus has done and is continuing to do for the past 30 years of his life. God is affirming and and pleased with the worship Jesus has given him in the 30 years in the every day. In the every day. As an ordinary human being, as a faithful son as a craftsman, as a student, as a mom or a dad or a pastor or a sibling. And I wonder if in our discipleship to Jesus, in our walk with God, in our obedience to God, we are leaning into the three years of public ministry. We just want the miraculous. We want the exciting, the spectacular years of discipleship. But I wonder if we're refusing to look at or have neglected the 30 years of every day grind in, grind out, faithful pursuit of God. Because Jesus lived in the sphere and space of the miraculous, but also in the mundane. And it was also equally, equally pleasing to God. How could this be? How is this this possible? Well, we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But how many of us are willing to lean in on the amazing fact of Jesus' divinity? I mean, I thought Jesus was amazing just because he was God. But how was it in his humanity, in the ordinary, in the everyday that I think a lot of us can relate to here? How was Jesus able to please God on the basis of his humanity? On the basis of the ordinary or the everyday? I mentioned before that every gospel author has a distinct flavor and perspective of Jesus. Matthew tries to highlight Jesus' identity as Jesus the Messiah. Mark tries to highlight Jesus' identity as God's suffering servant. John tries to highlight the idea of Jesus being uh, the um, um, God's um, or the divinity of God. And in Luke, there's also something unique about Luke. What about Luke? Luke tries to highlight the humanity of Jesus. And you don't need a seminary degree for this. Take a look. At the passage, the, the, do you know what passage comes straight after God's pronouncement of pleasure of Jesus in Luke? It's the most exciting part that everyone loves. Can you figure it out? It's the genealogy, okay? Everyone loves genealogy, said no one. Luke is the only gospel that demonstrates Jesus' baptism immediately followed by a genealogy. All the other gospel accounts after the baptism send Jesus to the wilderness where he is fighting off the temptations of Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. Why is there a genealogy after the baptism of Jesus where God says to him, well done, I am well pleased with you, my son. Why does he say that? Take a look at verse 38 of chapter 3. It says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, my man here, the son of Adam, the son of God. Why does Luke turn it back to Adam? To demonstrate Jesus' humanity. Now, how did Adam live out his calling? How did he please God? You know how he, he, he worked the garden. That's, that's pretty anticlimactic, considering the fact that just before the creation of Adam and Eve, God creates 
the universe. He creates the stars. Everything is pristine. There is no sin. The universe breathes out stars and galaxies by the power of his word. And then God creates Adam and Eve and he says, I want you to be my king and my queen over my creation. How? By digging up dirt and planting. Well, planting what? Planting a church? I can plant a church. No, plant a seed. No, I can, I can plant a seed of faith. No, I want you to just plant a seed of a plant. I've given you a garden and I want you to take care of it and work the garden. Now, isn't that a little anticlimactic here? But for some reason, that was enough for Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 2 to 3 to live out their collective callings as the first king and the first queen of God's creation. The reason why is because underneath gardening, there are fundamental principles at play here. Underneath the role of a gardener, underneath the role of a pastor, underneath the role of a servant, underneath the role of a student, underneath the role of a mom or a dad or a working professional, underneath all of these individuals and roles, do you know what those fundamental principles are at work here? God wanted Adam to just love him, to delight in him, to surrender everything to him. And whatever human being God would place in the garden, God wanted him to love that human being. And so God creates Eve, and now God calls Adam to love his wife, Eve. And he wanted Adam to love her and to provide for her and help her love God and others and the rest of the creation. And we see that theme echoing all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The greatest commandments, the the entire summation of the law is fulfilled in loving God and loving others. So that when Jesus is 13 years old and he is expected to adhere to the Mosaic law, how did he do that? How did Jesus, as a 13-year-old, live faithfully to God? He loved God and he loved others. How? As a son, as a sibling, as as a worshiper at the temple, as a carpenter, as a student, as a mom, as a dad, as a working professional. And so from all appearances, Jesus, for the first 30 years of his life, was living an ordinary, mundane life of being single, working a nine-to-five job, but deep underneath, Jesus was living the human calling that God had called him from the beginning, namely, to love God and to love others. That's why God was so satisfied and pleased with the totality of Jesus' life, For the first 30 years of Jesus' life, for the first time ever, a a human being, for the first time ever, lived the way God had fully intended his creation to live. And that human being was Jesus. And what that means for us is, could it be possible for Jesus to have loved God any less during his first 30 years of his life than those three years of his public ministry? Could it be possible for Jesus to have loved God any less during his first 30 years of his life than the three years of his public ministry? Could it be possible that in in those 33 years of his life, he fully operated out of loving God and loving others? Jesus wore different hats and callings at different times. But underneath how we love God and how we follow God was exactly the same. You see, we don't think like this. If we were John the Baptist doing amazing kingdom work for 18 years, okay, while Jesus was in diapers, and we hear God saying, you are my beloved son, with you with you, I am well pleased, you would think that God was talking to us, John the Baptist, 
not to Jesus, the ordinary carpenter, but he was actually talking to Jesus. Why? Because whether we are in the sphere of the extraordinary or the ordinary of our lives, following Jesus, the pursuit of God, what makes him pleased is that wherever we are, whatever we may be doing, we are always making it our aim by the spirit and power of God to love him and to love others. And there's something about this, dare I say, simplicity. There's something about this simplicity here that is extraordinary and also ordinary. And if this is true, and it brings us to a few applications that we can draw from this. So thank you, for, thank you for patiently waiting. I know that some of you guys were just rolling your eyes. Some of you were like, I thought we were done. No, guess not. We've got a few more implications. First implication is following Jesus flows out of our saved humanity, not a bypassed humanity. Following Jesus flows out of our saved humanity, not a bypassed humanity. Did you notice how Jesus did not go out of his way to accomplish the will of God? Jesus took no shortcuts. Jesus fully knew that he was God and man. Jesus did not lean on his divinity to do what God required of him. Out of his humanity, he loved God and served others. This means that when God saves us from our sins, and that's the problem with our sins, is that we are unable to or we deficiently love God and neighbor because sin caves inward and gives us and to, to love ourselves. But when God saves us from our sins and, and Jesus transforms us and gives us power by the Spirit, our hearts are turned upside out, inside out to become the God-imaged human being that God intended for us to be all along from the beginning. A new way of being human that I've been talking about for so long in 1 Corinthians. And it is a new way of being human that the second Adam models for us. This means that every day when you walk in your new humanity, when you, wake, when you wake up, when you get out of the shower or whatever you do in the morning to get ready for school or for work, all of those arenas and spheres are spaces where God meets us and wants us to live out our faith. It is through our saved humanity, not through a bypassed spiritual, super spiritual reality that I think we expect when we become Christians. It is through the ordinary life of a Christian. That is where it flows out of. Secondly, second implication is that following Jesus means that the circumstances of following Jesus may change, but the calling of following remains the same. The call to follow Jesus is the same. But where he calls you may change. Of course, when Jesus calls Peter and Andrew to follow him, he calls them in the midst of them dragging fish at the crack of dawn. When Jesus calls Levi, he calls for him while he was playing monkey in the tree. Wherever you are, bless you, wherever you are, how old or young, good circumstances or bad circumstances, new marriage, new baby, new car, brand new school, bad grades, good grades, UCLA, El Camino, wherever you are, your calling as a follower of Jesus remains the same. And the call, that call, is to love God with all that you are and to love others by the Spirit of God. The circumstances and the external shell and the context and, and how that looks like can change. It changed for Jesus. There was a time when he was young when he submitted to his parents. As a 12-year-old, he was loving God, loving others as a 12-year-old. And then, when he into, and, then, and then when he entered into 18 years of carpentry, that context changed too. And despite that change of context, he still loved God, loved others through the use of wood and stone. 
But when he, but then he, when he started in, when he entered into his three years of demon butt kicking and preaching ministry, he still loved God and loved others in the context of saving people, healing people, demonic, demonic kingdom crushing stuff. And when he died on the cross for our sins, what did he, what did he do? He did the same thing. He loved God and loved others. What does this mean for you? Well, if you are a junior in high school, getting three hours of sleep because you were not, you were up not studying, but just, you know, doing dumb stuff, your calling is the same as the dad who has to get up at work every morning at the crack of dawn to beat traffic on the 405. That call is the same. Love God and love others. Your roles, the the external shell, the contexts look different, but the calling remains the same in whatever role or season that you are in, you are to love God and to love others in the context that you were given and that is pleasing to God. And so if you're in a place where you're really struggling with life right now, things are not good, maybe you're in a lot of uh, emotional turmoil, maybe you're in, in a lot of physical pain even, it does not change your calling to love God, to be desperate for him, to seek his face, and to love others in the season of suffering or in the season of the mundane. For some of us, maybe your life is just taking off. Maybe things are going really well in your life. Maybe you got into this club, or maybe you're on the sports team. Maybe you're in the extraordinary right now. Maybe you're getting good grades. People don't hate you. Uh, you got into the school that you always wanted to get into. Things are going great. That does not change your calling to love God, to still be desperate for him, to seek him, and to love others in the season of the miraculous. The circumstances may change, but the substance and the heart of the call to follow Jesus remains the same. Third implication. Following Jesus also means delighting in and surrendering to Jesus daily. Now I realize also that there's also that one person in this room thinking, well, there is a strange biblical simplicity here, and I like it because if you can love God and others in the extraordinary, then why would you ever want to love God in, uh, and, and love others in the normal, unextraordinary days of our lives? Maybe some of us would never ever feel compelled to suffer and to sacrifice because we justify that we are comfortable loving God and loving others from the comforts of our homes, schools, or wherever. So this entire message is almost a cop-out, but you're not off the hook, okay? Following Jesus will mean that wherever Jesus leads you, whichever context Jesus takes you, you surrender to it daily. You know why Jesus was able to surrender at the baptism? It's because he had spent his first 30 years delighting in the pleasure of God. When he was 12 years old in the temple of God, what is he doing there? What does he say in Luke chapter chapter 2, verse 49? He says, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? When Jesus gets baptized, it is simply a continuation of all that he has been doing his entire life. When Jesus gets to Gethsemane and he says, "Not not my will, Father, but your will be done. He allows God to have full direction of his heart and his life. God, you can move my heart and you can move my life wherever you see fit. Jesus' ultimate submission 
and surrender to the Father on the cross was made possible only because of the fact that he had daily delighted to do the Father's will and a daily submission to the Father from when he was first born. You want to ask how you can submit to God in the extraordinary ways? How are you submitting to God in the ordinary ways of your life? What are you doing every day in the everyday mundane of your life as a high school student, as a mom, as a researcher, as an accountant, as a student? What areas of your life are you daily submitting to the Lord? Because don't expect for you to do the hard stuff if you can't even do the easy, everyday, mundane stuff of life. So maybe you get into this school that you've been dreaming of going to when you were five. But you also know that maybe there's a financial hardship or maybe your dying relatives are Christians and really need to hear the gospel. And you know that if you left, you would almost never see them again. Or that simply it wouldn't be in your best interest to attend that school, maybe because there's just no Christian influence in that area whatsoever. Can you delight in the Father and surrender and submit to the Father? And maybe saying no to that school. It is way easier to make a one-time decision than to make a habitual, continual, and daily surrender to God. How is it possible that Jesus made the ultimate submission to God the Father? You know what it is? He submitted to his parents every day. You see what it says here in verse 51 of chapter 2? He says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Megan and I uh, really want to have kids. And we're both been, we've both been praying about it. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about what it would be like to be a dad. And I, as I was thinking about that, uh, Lord willing, if I had one kid or two or three, and God forbid, more. Just kidding. Um, uh, but... Um, I, I was I was praying, uh, and I was just thinking about and I was I was thinking about these future kids that I would have. My heart for them would be that I don't I don't quite care about their occupation, um, I their their future job, what, what city they live in. Actually, I take that back. They, they shouldn't do anything illegal. Um, but no matter what, I would I would just simply want them as a, as a dad to love Megan and me, to love one another, and to love whomever they encounter. And I trust that as they love their imaginary parents uh, and my imaginary kids, as they, as they spend imaginary time with me and they're, they're going to figure out what I delight and desire for them as their dad. I don't want them to feel stressed, about, stressed out about what job they choose or what major or how much money to make, although the more the better, you know. Uh, but I want them to delight in me and to live under our loving authority and to love one another and I trust that they're going to figure it out. So whenever my imaginary, you know, our future daughter or son get married, you can be sure that I'll, be, I'll have this saved in their toast. Uh, but this is, I think, an imperfect analogy of what it is to live under the r- loving rule of God. Are you, are you delighting in the Father? Are you delighting in the Father? Are you seeking his will and pleasure? Do you love God? Is he precious and beautiful to you? Can I say, I, I, I love you, God. You are the most beautiful person in all of existence. And I'm fully content to be with you in your house tonight. And in light of that delight, are you surrendered to the Father? Meaning, have you relinquished all control of your life decisions, what 
choice you make about school, where to go for school, what major. This, obviously, this doesn't mean that it's not important, but have you relinquished control of that to God? That wherever he calls you, whatever he calls you to, and even if it may be scary or uncertain, you say, I surrender to you, God. And if you can say, yes, that's, that's what I want, then I wonder if you may be living out your Christian life much more like Jesus than you had ever thought. That maybe you are realizing that you are walking into a new way of being human. And for those of you who are tonight do not delight in the Father or have not surrendered your life to him, maybe you're scared, maybe you don't want to, may I just simply invite you to delight in him? This is not an invitation to say a prayer, but an invitation for you to behold and to delight in God. You know, what's profound is that for 30 years and for his last three years of his life, Jesus loved God and loved others perfectly. He fulfilled the law, the, the, the fundamental principles of humanity that God first assigned, to, assigned in Genesis. The principles that you and I violate every single day. And even though we should be punished and condemned for our sin and failure, Jesus stepped into our place. He loved God and he loved others, did what, he could, did what we could not and went to the cross. And on the cross was crushed by his father. The book of Deuteronomy says that anyone who is hung on the tree is cursed by God. And on the cross, Jesus went from the beloved son to the cursed son. But on the third day, Jesus rose again, conquering our sin and the devil. And as the second Adam, he invites us by faith to respond to what he has done to love God and to love others exactly how God had always intended for his, for his humanity to live. Why? Because when you place your faith in him, the Father delights in you, just as the Father delights in his Son. When the Father says to Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, there is an echo looming that when you place your faith in the Son, that echo is screeching out to you. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Whether you're walking in the extraordinary or the ordinary. You know, isn't there something poetic that Jesus worked for most of his life with wood and stone and yet the extraordinary and and ordinary means of your salvation would be through wood and stone. Wood from a cross and a stone that is rolled away from a grave. Two of my favorite questions as a youth pastor is, so what do you do every day? And I tell people, I just make fun of the poor pastors that sit next to my left and my right. Just kidding, not really. Uh, and so and my, my second favorite question is, wh- why did you want to be a pastor? And this is my favorite uh, because I love to say that. It's because I'm not good at anything else. And uh, all you guys laugh because you're like, it's kind of true. Um, but in all honesty, I, I'm a pastor uh, because I try to delight in my father and surrender to him. As I do so, as I, as I delight in my father and as I surrender to him, I am convinced that I am exactly where God needs me to be. I I know exactly what he wants me to do at this moment in my life. Now, is God free to change that? Of course, he's God. God is free to do whatever in my life. But the pressure of me figuring out all that stuff is off. This evening, the Father just wants me to delight in him and to surrender, to love him and to love those around me. And later tonight, when I go home, which is usually around 11.45 p.m., the same calling applies in my role as a husband to Megan. 
and for you as a disciple of Jesus. Whether you are walking in the fantastic or the mundane of life, you are invited into an amazing human calling to love God and to love others. You and I will fail every day, but by the grace of God, by the power of God, in light of Jesus fulfilling the law on our behalf, we can little by little walk in step by step with him, in the extraordinary and in the ordinary, as the new humanity of God in whom the Father is well pleased. Let's pray. Father, I... uh, God, we thank you that in Jesus you have saved us and you've purchased us by your blood. And that in Jesus, not only are we forgiven, but we are also given a new human project of being the new community. The transformed people of God who love you and love others. And we're reminded of the fact that despite the fact that we will not do it perfectly, we're thankful that you call us and invite us back into the simple things of the things of God to love you, and to love others. And God, I think for some of us, I think for a lot of us, we think that so much, there is so much complexity to the Christian life, and it's true, there is, but there's also a simplicity that you have given to us that is merely just boiled down to loving you and loving others. And we know that it is something that will take a lifelong time to learn and to do. But God, we thank you for the fact that you are the God who does not overwhelm us, but the God who gives us grace and grace upon grace. And so God, we thank you that in Jesus, we are given not just the paradigm or the example, but the Savior, the Messiah, the, the Son of Man, who loved us and gave himself up for us. We thank you. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.